Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Jack, and I am an alcoholic. And I do come to you from Hagerstown, Maryland, where I am a member of the cleverly named Hagerstown Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our group is the third oldest group in the state of Maryland, and back when our group was started, if you had one town, you had one meeting. And... Uh, but as frequently happens in AA, a couple of resentments and a few coffee pots. we got 15 uh, groups now and about 50-some meetings, so uh, that's how we grow in AA. Um, my mom is 94 years old. She was married to my alcoholic father for 30 years before they divorced. She knows what an alcoholic is. And on Thursday, when I called her to uh, tell her that I was going to be out of town this weekend and where I was going to be, she said, you're going to be speaking another one of those AA things, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, well, you make sure you tell those people that you are not an alcoholic. <laughs> now, my mom knows what an alcoholic is. And I think I should maybe start listening to my mom. <laughs> About time, don't you think? I mean, I could have overreacted to this whole thing. <laughs> we'll try to sort some of this out, out while I'm here this evening. I do want to thank the committee for allowing uh, Lori to invite me to be here uh, this weekend. I think it's very important that you know who is responsible for my being here. <laughs> because if I say anything that offends you during the next two and a half hours that we're together, <laughs> you take that up with Lori, because she's the one that's responsible for my being here. <laughs> now, should I say something that you approve of, by all means, please see me after the meeting. Because <laughs> I can sure use those attaboys. Um, I'm going to take my watch off and put it up here, not so much because I can see it or even pay very much attention to it, but I just think it gives hope to the newcomer. Uh, <laughs> Lori did not mention anything about cell phones tonight. Uh, probably the, she would have said the same thing tonight. She said last night, and if you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic, you wouldn't have paid any more attention to her tonight than you did last night. <laughs> But I'm an alcoholic of the type that you tell me what to do. I don't like being told what to do, so I do the opposite. So if you're here tonight and you got a cell phone with you, turn it on. <laughs> Particularly if you're anticipating a liver transplant. But if you would mind putting it on uh, vibrate, uh, that way you can enjoy your incoming call and you won't disturb the rest of us. I began to drink when I was 14 or 15 years old, and I'm quite certain that alcohol did for me exactly what it did for you, certainly for the speakers who've been here earlier in this conference. I mean, it changed my whole perception of reality. It allowed me to, for the first time in my life, once I'd had enough of it that I'd ingested, that I could have feel the effect produced by alcohol, 
I was able to do things which I could not do uh, when not drinking. And uh, it, was, it was the elixir of life. Uh, it was the answer uh, to everything that uh, had been troubling me. I knew immediately why my father drank, and uh, it was a shame that he couldn't control his drinking like I could, but, uh, you know, that's on him, not on me. Uh, last man standing kind of thing. I mean, it's a mano a mano thing, macho kind of thing when you're in high school. And uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking about how we're going to get it, who's going to get it, how much money we're going to need, all that planning, all that goes into getting it and then having to drive all those people home at the end of the night. And, you know, that was... I loved drinking, loved everything about drinking. I used to say that drinking never caused me any difficulty in high school, but as a result of good sponsorship, I can tell you this evening that I spent five years in high school. <laughs> I thought it was because of, uh, you know, just misunderstandings and unfortunate consequences of some behaviors, but it turned out it wasn't just bad breaks, it was the booze. And uh, I didn't recognize that at the time. But when I got out of high school, I went to the community college. And uh, second, I guess second year I was in community college, my buddy Bill and I were planning a trip to California. We're going to take a road trip. And uh, we got 12 cases of beer. And we each packed an overnight bag. (laughs) We had everything you need to go to California. And... I'd quit my job and had a pocket full of money. And the night before we were to leave, Bill's dad wouldn't let him go. I was crushed. <laughs> Bill's a stand-up guy. He gave me his 50% interest in the 12 cases of beer. As most of you know, the eastern border of Maryland is on the Atlantic Ocean, and we've got a little resort community there called Ocean City, and so I went down to the ocean. And I spent a month there living as a bum, really. I didn't have a job. I lived in the basement of hotels where I knew people who were desk clerks and bellhops. And I ate uh, leftover restaurant food. Uh, people uh, were waiters and waitresses. And so, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to pay for room, and I didn't have to pay for board. And I had those 12 cases of beer, and then I had that pocket full of money, and I had a great month in Ocean City. I really enjoyed it. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, I wanted to work in Ocean City the following summer. But uh, I'm a keen observer of my surroundings, and it became clear to me that if you drank like I drank and acted like I acted when drinking, and over the course of a summer, you'd end up getting arrested. And I did not want to get arrested. I mean, it didn't make any difference if you were a lifeguard or a beach boy, waiter or waitress, bartender. It just didn't matter. If you drank like I drank and acted like I act, good chance of getting arrested. But there was one group of people there in Ocean City who did drink like I drank and did act like I acted, and they were not getting arrested. And they were the members of the Ocean City Police Department. (laughs) So I became a police officer. I had the first summer, I had a boardwalk beat, and within a matter of days, it was clear that I possess a God-given talent that I can spot an underage drinker from 100 yards. And I would approach my target of opportunity, and we would establish indeed that they were underage. I'd ask them what they had in the cooler. They would generally tell me something like, uh, we've got some Coca-Cola in there. 
Got a little Tupperware thing of uh, tuna fish and a half loaf of bread. I said, you mind opening the lid of the cooler? Well, they'd open the lid of the cooler, and there's a nice even row of Coca-Cola. And just like they said, a little thing of tuna fish, half a loaf of bread. But I'd reach way down in the bottom of that cooler, and invariably I'd come up with a Budweiser. And if you're that underage drinker, your life as you've known it has just ended. Oh, I know. You think you're going to college, but you're not. You're going to jail. And once that college that you got admitted to finds out you've been in the Ocean City Jail, they aren't going to want you. They don't need people like you in colleges. Now, maybe you thought about going in the military. Well, let me tell you something. You're going to jail. And when the United States military finds out you've been in the Ocean City Jail, they're not going to want you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to call your mom and dad back in Baltimore (laughs) at 3 a.m. this morning, and I'm going to tell them, I have locked you up in the Ocean City Jail. What's that? You want to offer a compromise? (laughs) What did you have in mind? Confiscate the beer. Well, that's certainly worthy of consideration, but you do understand if I confiscate the beer, I'm going to have to take the cooler. If I take the cooler, I'm going to have to take Coca-Cola and tuna fish. (laughs) You're okay with that. All right. Well, you're going to have to promise me. Give me your word that you are never, ever going to do anything like this again in Ocean City. Promise? Okay. You're free to go. Now, it is really difficult to walk a boardwalk beat dragging a cooler full of beer around behind you. So I had to work out a deal with my uh, lieutenant and sergeant, and they'd come and pick up the coolers as I accumulated them. (laughs) We would meet at the end of my shift, and if I'd gotten any whiskey or wine, I would give that to them, and I'd get the coolers and the beer and the uh, Coca-Cola and the tuna fish. I had a good summer that summer. I drank every day. I did not buy anything to drink the entire summer, and I didn't get arrested. That's my idea of a good summer. So I thought I'd go back for a second summer. Second summer, they gave me a squad car, lights and siren, by a very own. One of them big old Crown Victorias. I mean, you can get three bodies or five coolers in the trunk of one of them things. Expanded my territory. I had a good summer that summer. Drank every day. Didn't buy anything to drink the entire summer. And I didn't get arrested. Seemed like I was on a roll. So I went back for a third summer. Now, third summer, they gave me my squad car back. And uh, what I'm about to tell you is an event that changed the entire course of my life. And maybe you've got a benchmark like this in your life. But it was 3 a.m. I was on the beach highway, and I stopped a car. guy was obviously drunk who was driving it. I had him out. I was writing him up. And uh, he said to me, you don't know who I am, do you, officer? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, well, I am the state's attorney for Worcester County, the county you're standing in right now. I'm a college kid. 
I got no idea what a state's attorney is or does. I've never heard the term state's attorney before. So I said to him, good for you, sign the ticket. <laughs> so he signed the ticket, and uh, he, uh, there was a guy there who appeared to be sober, and I let him drive the car, and they went on their way, and at 8 o'clock I pulled my squad car into the parking lot of the Ocean City Police Department, and the chief of police was standing there in the parking lot, and he said, uh, come up to my office and bring that ticket book with you. Well, these were the first words that the chief had spoken to me the entire summer. I thought, this is a good thing. I'm about to get recognition for a job well done. Long overdue recognition, I might add. And uh, so I went up to the chief's office, and as I walked into his office, much to my surprise, seated right inside the door on the couch was the guy I gave the ticket to at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the chief said, give me that ticket book. And I handed him the ticket book, and he flipped it open to the ticket. He handed it to the guy on the couch. The guy on the couch took out a pen, and he wrote across the face of that ticket, case dismissed, and signed his name. Well, <clears throat> it was at that moment I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Because if you drank and drove like I drank and drove, the ability to dismiss traffic charges with a stroke of a pen was going to come in mighty handy. So I went to law school. Um, a lot of smart people in law school. I was not one of them. Law school interfered with my drinking. Um, confined it mostly to weekends. My, I met my wife at the University of Maryland. We got married while I was in law school. When I got out of law school, she and I went back to my hometown, Hagerstown, and I've been practicing law maybe six, eight weeks, and I became aware that the local state's attorney's office had a vacancy. They were looking for an assistant state's attorney. I went right over. <laughs> Here I am. Answer to your prayers, when would you like me to start? Now, as already was referenced last night, what I'm about to tell you is what I thought I heard them say. And maybe you've had this experience in your own life that many of the things that I thought I've heard said have never been said. I just thought I heard them. And there are a lot of things in my life that I thought I saw happen which never really happened. I just thought I saw them. I have a perception problem and a hearing problem. But this is what I thought I heard them say. What? Are you some kind of an idiot? You just got out of law school. You've never been in a courtroom. You've never impaneled a jury. You've never made an opening statement or a closing argument. You've never examined or cross-examined a witness. We don't have time to train you. Get out of the office. That's what I thought I heard them say. Now, upon reflection, I believe they said something to the effect that the position has been filled. <laughs> but I heard what I heard. And I'm very sensitive. <laughs> and my feelings were hurt. And, um, well, I was angered also. And I now know that I left there with a resentment. And, uh, you know, like in Pennsylvania, we elect our prosecutors in Maryland. And I went out and found myself a lawyer who wanted to be state's attorney. I ran his campaign for state's attorney. He got elected state's attorney. He made me deputy state's attorney. 
And when you get to be deputy state's attorney, they give you a badge. And with that badge, they give you a badge case. Now, that badge case has got a clear plastic window. You put your driver's license behind it. And when they pull you over and they come up to your car and they say license and registration and you show them that badge case, they don't look at that driver's license. Oh, the badge officer, deputy state's attorney, Washington County. No, sir, I'm not upset that you stopped me. I understand you're just doing your job. I'm, I may have had four or five. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just, yeah, I'll just, I only really have a couple more miles to go. Mm-hmm. Sure, I think I can stay on my side of the road. Yeah. 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 Well, I want you to know, officer, that I really appreciate the professional courtesy which you're extending to me this evening. Thank you so much. And you have a nice night, too, officer. Now, some of you may be getting a little insight into why I've never been arrested, but uh, it gets better. My, uh, my boss, the state's attorney, he was to be appointed circuit court judge. And if he got appointed circuit court judge, I was going to be appointed state's attorney. Well, I suspect that here in Pennsylvania, you have similar situations from time to time, but down in Maryland, our local State senator stuck his nose in where it didn't belong, and he screwed the whole thing up, and somebody else got appointed circuit court judge. And I was upset for my friend. (laughs) But I was really upset that I didn't get appointed state's attorney. And one night, while having some adult beverages with some like-minded individuals, it was determined that something ought to be done about that state senator. You need to be taught a lesson. Shouldn't be messing around with appointments like that. Somebody ought to run against him. Needed a volunteer. <laughs> so I ran for the state senate. Now, I did not know that the state senator was going to run off with the secretary from the appropriations committee and abandon his wife and three children and move to Florida. But he did. And I got elected state senator. (laughs) Now, in Maryland, when you get elected state senator, they give you a license plate, and it says state senator. (laughs) This is an aid to efficient law enforcement. Because when they come up behind you on the interstate and they got those overheads going on and they get close enough to see that license plate, they turn those overheads off. And they come up alongside of you. And they turn on that interior dome light. And they beep. Beep, beep. Hi, Senator. Hi, Trooper. Hold it down, Senator. Okay, Trooper. And that way, you don't have members of the Maryland State Police tied up alongside of the highway with members of the General Assembly when they can be out arresting real crooks. <laughs> well, that guy who got appointed circuit court judge I was telling you about, he did not like the job. So he quit. And I went over to see the governor. 
I said, Governor, I'd like you to appoint my friend, the state's attorney, circuit court judge. He said, Senator, I cannot do that. There was too much adverse publicity associated with that last judicial appointment up there in Hagerstown. I cannot appoint your guy circuit court judge. However, if you'd like to be circuit court judge, I'll appoint you. Well, it's a 15-year term in Maryland, and we only had two in our community, so why not? I became circuit court judge. Scary proposition, isn't it? Yeah. Even Bobby's starting to squirm over there. Now, I'm drinking alcoholically all through this. I mean, I don't know it's alcoholic drinking. I just know it's, I mean, it's, I love drinking. I mean, I love everything about drinking. I mean, I'm a bar drinker. I love the neon lights. I love the way the light reflects off the back bar mirror and the different shapes of the different bottles and the clears and the browns and the yellows and the greens. I mean, I love that. Love that. I love the sawdust on the floor, the peanut shells, the smell of stale beer and urine. I mean, I love it all. I love the ambiance of drinking the glassware. You know those uh, long, slim, frosted glasses that start showing up about this time of the year for Tom Collins? Love that. Little short, squat, old-fashioned glasses, you know? The stemware, the, the fluted glass for the gin martini. I mean, where can you get olives like that? <laughs> Except the gin martini. And I'll confess to you that one time in my life I had a love affair with the gin martini. But I had a really bad gin experience. And even to this day it's difficult for me to go into a pine forest. My uh, my drink of choice was uh, Jack Daniels Black Label and Crushed Ice with a twist of lemon. That was great. That was wonderful. That was to die for. I like top shelf. I like bottom shelf. I like imported. I like domestic. I really prefer something with a screw-off cap, but if all you've got has got a cork in it, I'm willing to try to work with that. But if you came up to me with a brown paper bag and you just shoved that at me and said, here, Jack, take a pull on this, I would never ask you what was in that bag because you would have never offered it to me if it wasn't good. (laughs) Boom! Good stuff. Good stuff. You know, sometimes uh, you have folks over to the house and, you know, watch a ball game or play some cards or whatever, and they leave, and you got to clean up, and you got a lot of cans sitting around, and whoo, this one's got a little something in it, and <coughs> what was that? Right, cigarette butt, yep. <laughs> I knew there were some cigarette butt drinkers in here. You don't have to raise your hands, that's all right. I know you're in here. Yeah, my people.
loved to drink. Loved everything about it. So on April the 7th, 1982, a local attorney and myself had determined that we were going to go out and get drunk. We told my wife that we were going out to dinner. But he and I, we knew we were going out to get drunk. This was not one of those occasions when I negligently allowed myself to be overserved. This was a deliberate attempt to get knee-walking, snot-flying drunk. And we did. And we ended up in a local honky-tonk. And had I known that this was going to be my last drink of beverage alcohol, I would have ordered something different. And if I had had any idea, an inkling of an idea, that I was going to end up coming here to talk to you fine folks about my last drink of beverage alcohol, I would have definitely ordered something different. Because as you're about to hear, there is a significant amount of embarrassment and a degree of shame associated with what I am forced to tell you. And that is that my last drink of beverage alcohol was Tia Maria. <laughs> oh, now, that's not fair. How do you think I feel? Now, I can see by the expression on the face of a number of you that you have no idea what Tia Maria is. And let me assure you, you don't want to know. And you don't need to know. I mean, if you're an Alcoholics Anonymous and you're here tonight, for God's sake, do not go back out for Tia Maria. <laughs> Stay here. I mean, you're here. There's nothing here that's going to harm you. You go back out there, you try Tia Maria, you're going to be harmed for sure. Well, my wife is a school teacher. She teaches elementary school. And my guess is that the elementary school children here in Pennsylvania are very much like the elementary school children in Maryland. Those little children are just germ-encrusted. And the teacher, the teacher goes to the elementary school and teaches those little kids, and the germs drop, jump off the little kids onto the teacher. And then the teacher goes home, and the germs jump off of the teacher onto the spouse of the teacher. And the next day, I got up, I had flu. Can you imagine that? Those pesky little kids had done it to me one more time. But... We go to work. We go to work. We do not miss work for the flu because somebody might, just might, associate the fact that I'm missing work with my drinking last night. So as long as I'm going to work, no problem. However, the next day was Good Friday, and I still had the flu. And so <clears throat> I was home. Courthouse was closed. And I developed that upset stomach thing that frequently accompanies flu. And then uh, 
On Saturday, I got that lower tract distress that was referenced last night. Frequently, frequently accompanies flu. And if you got that upset stomach thing going on with that lower tract distress thing, that is going to hone your decision making down to a fine edge. Because I didn't know where to sit or kneel or kneel or sit. And I made the wrong decision at least once that weekend. And if my wife were here, you could talk to her about that. Sunday was uh, Easter Sunday. And on Monday, uh, they put me in the hospital because I was so dehydrated from all that kneeling and sitting that I'd been doing over the weekend. And my abdomen became distended, and they did an emergency laparotomy on me. And they opened me up, and they discovered that my abdomen was full of uh, gangrene, peritonitis. And while they were attempting to clean that up, uh, my kidneys quit. My liver was enlarged and out of whack, and my pancreas was digesting itself, and my respiratory system quit. Things just weren't looking all that great for the home team. <laughs> and uh, I spent three weeks in intensive care in the Hagerstown Hospital. They got me off the respirator, but all the rest of the stuff kept getting worse. And they told my wife they were going to send me down to Johns Hopkins. I thought this was, I thought this was a good thing. And they told my wife that she should not expect me to come back from Johns Hopkins, that they were really sending me down there to die. There wasn't anything more that they could do for me in Hagerstown. They didn't think there was anything Hopkins can do. But on the off chance that there was, they were going to send me down there. Well, they didn't tell me that, and I knew people had gone to Johns Hopkins, and they'd lived. And I knew other people had gone to the Hagerstown Hospital, and they died. <laughs> so I thought going to Johns Hopkins was a good thing. I would, I'd have been discouraged if they'd have told me they were sending me down there to die. So I went down to Johns Hopkins, and for two weeks they did everything but hang me by my thumbs. And uh, at the end of that... Uh, my belly button birthday is on May the 14th. And on May the 13th, these uh, doctors who were treating me came into the hospital room, and I told them, man, I said, you guys, tomorrow's my birthday. I said, I just can't take it anymore. Please, I beg of you, give me a day of rest. They said, well, that's why we're here. We wanted to tell you that we have presented your case to the internal medicine department here at Hopkins, and we cannot get a majority vote on what's wrong with you. And we've done everything we know to do. So tomorrow, we're going to give you a day of rest. And I turned 40 in the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And two weeks later, on May the 28th, I was discharged from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. My kidney function returned. My liver came back within normal limits. My pancreas stopped digesting itself. And when you're seven weeks in the hospital like that, and they're about ready to ship you out, they want to have a little meeting with you, tell you about the do's and don'ts so you won't come back. But if you got an undiagnosed illness, they don't know what to tell you. So in my case, they said, Judge, we just suggest you don't get it again because it's likely to kill you. And to be perfectly honest with you, I felt that it was much better to survive an undiagnosed illness than to die of a known cause. I mean, that's the way I felt about it then, and that's the way I feel about it now. <laughs> so I was, 
I was within maybe two or three steps of getting out of that doctor's office when they said to me, we got one more question to ask you, Judge. I said, what's that? They said, do you drink? What what kind of question is that? I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Well, I used to be a lawyer. Now I'm a judge. When I was a lawyer... I had to drink with clients. I had to drink with other lawyers. I had to drink with judges. Now that I'm a judge, I got to drink with lawyers. I got to drink with other judges. It is a matter of professional obligation. Of course I drink. How much do you drink? Not that much. Why do you ask? Well, we should. We just think you should not drink for a while. Because uh, alcohol just really does a number on the kidneys, and and your kidney functions return, but we don't know. We're really not sure just what would happen if you drank. And uh, there's nothing that destroys the liver like alcohol. And then, of course, we, we don't know if there's any permanent damage to your liver right now. And then, of course, there's the pancreas, which is no longer digesting itself, and nothing destroys the pancreas like alcohol. And you've got these three vital sensitive organs involved, and we just think you should not drink for a while. How long? <laughs> a year. Ooh, yeah. A year. Woo. Well, I haven't had a drink since April the 7th, and this is May 28th. I think I can probably do that. They said, no, Judge, you don't understand. This is Memorial Day weekend, and we want you to not drink for one year from June 1st. Now, I know that there are people in this audience here this evening who have already discerned the injustice that these doctors were trying to foist upon me because I was getting no credit for my seven weeks of continuous sobriety. (laughs) And I want you to know that I fought for those seven weeks and an argument broke out between these two learned physicians and this knuckleheaded judge as to when I would begin drinking again next April the 7th or June the 1st, and we reached a compromise. And the compromise was I would not drink until next April the 7th. And then if I thought that drinking had anything to do with the pain, suffering, and misery I just endured for seven weeks, then I would choose not to drink till June the 1st. And with that, I walked out of the Johns Hopkins Hospital into the most insane period of my life. Not drinking and not changing. Nobody mentioned alcoholism. No one said a word about it. Not drinking, not changing. And with every passing week of every passing month of every passing year that I did not drink, it was proof positive that I am not alcoholic. Because I think everybody in here would agree with me, and everybody knows the conventional wisdom is that alcoholics drink. And if I'm not drinking by definition, I am non-alcoholic. I can see some heads nodding. I'm glad you agree with me. Now, I will acknowledge that during this period of time, I was a little bit, little bit on edge, just a little bit prickly. 
Just a little bit pissed off in the spring-loaded position, but I think anybody would be that way if they had to deal with people that I had to deal with, because quite frankly, if people do what I say, do what I tell them to do, we are not going to have a problem. But if you're not going to listen to me, then you and I, we're going to have a problem, and you're not going to like what's going to happen next, because there's nothing wrong with me, okay? I'm fine. I am fine. I do not drink. I am not alcoholic. Everything is fine with me. All right? You hear me? I am fine. Bobby, how'd you like to have your DWI in front of me on Monday morning? Huh? Fine. Everything's fine. Not drinking and not changing. That sounds very much like don't drink and go to meetings. And I sure hope you find people in Pennsylvania do not tell people in your home groups don't drink and go to meetings. Because we kill alcoholics when we tell them that because they believe us. They believe that all they have to do is don't drink and go to meetings. Our book says you take alcohol away from the alcoholic, he's going to become restless, irritable, and discontented. Well, that is a... Gross understatement in my case. <laughs> and the alcoholic is either going to drink again, slow suicide, or in my case, knowing I could never drink again, I'm going to shoot myself. Our sheriff had shot himself to death in the basement of our courthouse, and my office was on the top floor of the courthouse, and it seemed to me that if I shot myself to death in, our, in my office, that it would, that would add symmetry to the building. That's not funny. That's sad. But that was my best thinking at the time. Now, my dad, my alcoholic father, on July the 3rd of 1968, was walking past a Methodist church in Hagerstown, and the pastor put out on the message board, don't buy a fifth on the third for the fourth. My father went to Alcoholics Anonymous that night and never drank again. And when he died, he died with 15 years of continuous sobriety in this wonderful program. And I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous for my father's life. My dad was a good man. He was a good man. And alcoholism robbed him of everything in his life. It took that 30-year marriage to my mom. It took the respect of my sister and myself. When my sister got married, I gave her away because she did not want to invite our dad because she was afraid he had come and that he would be drunk. And he came even though he was not invited and he was drunk. And he lost a business he had spent his entire life building from the ground up. He lost everything that was tangible and material and he lost everything that was priceless. He lost his integrity. He lost his self-esteem. He lost it all. And Alcoholics Anonymous gave him back the stuff that was priceless. And I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude. My dad was a good member of AA. And he lived a wonderful 15 years right in the middle of this program. Now, there's two guys in Hagerstown, Ken and Bob, active members of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
who knew my dad and knew that my dad had died sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they came to me, and, and Bob said, Jack, we have this book in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we call it the big book. And we were wondering maybe that if you would like to read it and find out about your dad's illness. <laughs> Clever guy, that Bob. <clears throat> you know, had he said anything remotely to me like, we think you should read this book to find out what's wrong with you, we've already established there is nothing wrong with me. <laughs> However, I was interested in finding out about my dad's illness. And so uh, I read the book. And no surprise to me, quite frankly, uh, my dad's in that book. I mean, he was a real alcoholic, as described by the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. However, what was a surprise to me was that I'm in that book. I mean, that book was written before I was born. And yet they know things about my life and about me personally before they happened. They knew these things. I was, I was stunned. Uh, I went back to Ken and Bob and I told them how surprised I was. They, on the other hand, were not surprised. <laughs> In fact, I think they were counting on it. Um, I was willing to concede to them that there was a possibility, albeit a remote possibility, but a possibility nonetheless, that I may have contracted alcoholism. A very mild case, mind you, but we caught it just in time. I was willing to concede that, and that's all Bob and Ken needed. And they started coming to my judge's chambers every Friday, and they would bring their big book, and they would bring a brown bag lunch. And we would eat our lunch, and we would pray the serenity prayer, and we would read from the big book. And they would explain to me, they would explain to me the importance of what we had read. And then I would explain to them as Jack sees it. <laughs> and as you might expect, we had many high-level intellectual discussions about the contents and meaning of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And like our speaker this afternoon, I thought it was very important to them that I point out to them, as I think it's important that I point out to you, that while it is true that I spent five years in high school, that's true. Don't leave now. This is a good part. <laughs> five years in high school... I got an associate's degree from the community college in two years. And in two more years, I got a bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland in College Park. And three years after that, I got a Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Maryland School of Law with honors, I might add. And Ken said, we have degrees on rectal thermometers, Jack, and you know what we do with them. Now, up until that point, I had never heard that expression. I now know where he got it from you. 
It's been a while to find out, and I've been searching for you all my life. They said this in my chambers. My chambers, mind you. I mean, really. That was a little harsh. But you know, Ken and Bob were willing to hurt my feelings because they knew my feelings had been hurt before. And I'd get over it. And they were willing to risk angering me because they knew that I'd been angry before. And I'd get over it. But they knew that I was dying of untreated alcoholism, not drinking and not changing. And if something didn't happen, it didn't happen soon, I would die of untreated alcoholism. I didn't know that. Now, they knew that I didn't know what it was that they knew. And they knew that if I knew that they knew something that I didn't know, the mere fact that I knew that they knew something I didn't know, even though I didn't know what it was that they knew that I didn't know, just my knowing that they knew something that I didn't know, that fact and that fact alone would make me angry, knowing that they knew something that I didn't know because they weren't telling me what it was that they knew that I didn't know. I didn't know what it was that they knew that I didn't know. And so they were very consistent and persistent in coming to my chambers, however, because they knew that sooner or later, with God's help, there was an excellent chance that I would indeed come to know what it was that I did not know that they knew that I didn't know. And when I found out what it was that they knew that I didn't know that I didn't know what it was that they knew, that when I found that out, I would no longer be angry knowing that they knew something that I didn't know because in AA, you know when you know that you know and not a moment before. Now, if you followed any of that, you're in the right place. And if you found it to be the least bit confusing, you're still in the right place. Just means you don't know. Well, December 22nd, 1989 was uh, Friday uh, before Christmas. The courthouse was closed. Uh, Bob and Ken and I couldn't have our big book meeting in my chambers. So we all went out to, uh, to lunch. Now, let me say this, that when I was drinking, uh, when I was drinking, my wife and I were separated on three separate occasions, and there were women involved. And after I stopped drinking, my wife and I were separated on three separate occasions, and there were women involved. Now, I think that's pretty conclusive evidence that drinking had nothing to do with any of those six separations. But alcoholism had everything to do with all six of those separations, and we had no idea. No idea. None whatsoever. So on this Friday before Christmas in 1989, my wife and I are separated. And I'm living in an apartment. And after Bob and Ken and I have our Christmas lunch, we go our separate ways. I go back to the apartment. And there, propped against my apartment door, was a box that the mailman had brought and put against my door, a Hickory Farms box. Uh, somebody had sent the judge a cheese log or a sausage. I think this is very nice, very nice. And uh, I had a light lunch. I thought maybe I'd have a little snack. 
And I went into the apartment, and I was taking the messages off the answering machine and trying to figure out how to open this box, this package that was sealed with, uh, with scotch tape. And I, I saw where the seam was, where it was sealed, and I cut that seam with one of my car keys. And I'm listening to the messages on the answering machine, and I lift the lid to the box, and boom! Oh my God. That's what I said. <laughs> Maybe I said something else. Well, I got, this is not funny. I got blown back against the wall. The, um, about 10 days before that, a federal appellate judge in Birmingham, Alabama, had been killed by a bomb that had been sent to his home. And five days before that, approximately, a lawyer in Savannah, Georgia, had been killed by a bomb that had been sent to his office. And I could smell the gunpowder, and I knew that I'd opened a bomb. And there was a fire, and I tried to put it out, but I couldn't. And I went out in the hallway, and I pulled a fire alarm, and my neighbor came and said he had a fire extinguisher. And I went back into my apartment and went to a phone to call 911. And when I went to push the buttons on the phone, I became aware that part of my right hand had been blown away. And then when I hung up the phone from that call, it felt like somebody was trying to pull my trousers off my hips. And I stepped back and I looked at the floor and I was standing in a puddle of blood that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I looked at it. And I knew I was in serious trouble. And my neighbor had put the fire out and he asked if there was anything else he could do. And I said, uh, if you, I asked him to get me a towel. And he did. And uh, I opened my trousers, and I did not have the courage to try to visualize the wound. I just put the towel where I thought I'd been injured, and I put my back against the wall, and I slid down onto the floor. And it seemed to me I was going to die on that floor that afternoon. And I was alone. And I was afraid, and I was powerless. I'd been not drinking and not changing. The only tool that I had to reach for out of all those meetings that we had had in my chambers was the serenity prayer. And I asked God to grant me the serenity to accept this thing which I couldn't change, the courage to change what I could, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I prayed that prayer and I prayed that prayer and I prayed that prayer and I don't know if it was the fourth, fifth, sixth time through that prayer. I don't know it. I can tell you this. God came. God came. I was overcome by a sense of peace and well-being the likes of which I've never experienced before in my life nor have I experienced it since. I didn't know if I was going to live or die. But I did know that if I were to die on that floor that afternoon, never to see my wife, nor to see our three children again, it would be all right. Be all right. And the police, fire, and rescue people burst through the door to my apartment, and both my eardrums had been blown out, and I really couldn't, really couldn't understand what they were saying, but I tried to communicate with them, and when I did, this tremendous wave of fear 
swept upon me, and I told him, I said, you guys do whatever you have to do, and I'm going back to doing what I was doing. And I went back to the serenity prayer, and just like that, that sense of peace and well-being returned. They cut all my clothes off up me with the exception of my red and green Christmas socks, and they strapped me on a backboard and put me on a gurney and carried me down three flights of steps and stuffed me into an ambulance. And our local television station was Johnny on the spot, and they got a picture of my red and green Christmas socks sticking out the end of that ambulance, and those socks went around the world on CNN that night, and I went to the hospital for surgery. They couldn't find my girlfriend, and they couldn't find my wife, but they did find my sponsor, Ken. And they let Ken come back to where I was being prepared for surgery. And uh, Ken, uh, Ken prayed for me. And we prayed together. And they took me up to surgery. And I don't know how shrapnel knows how to stop passing through flesh. But I can only tell you what they told me, and that is they removed a rather significant piece of shrapnel, not resting against but in very close proximity to my femoral artery. And had my femoral artery been nicked, you'd have a different speaker here tonight, that's for sure. And they took me up to a recovery room, and when I came to in that recovery room, there was my sponsor, Bob, seated at the foot of my bed. And let me say here that it's really good to have a sponsor. I mean, Ken and Bob had appointed themselves my sponsor without my permission. I mean, they just did. I didn't know I could object. <laughs> Sponsors see things differently. They have a different take on things. I mean, they just have a different slant on stuff. I don't know how they do that, but they do. So it's really good to have a sponsor. And Bob was at the foot of the bed, and he was smiling. And I said, Bob, I noticed you're smiling. He said, well, yeah. He said, I just think it must be wonderful to know that you cannot be harmed. I said, harm, Bob? I said, somebody just tried to kill me. He said, oh, I know, Jack. He said, I understand that package that you opened contained four pipe bombs. One pipe bomb is more than adequate to kill a human being. Two pipe bombs, that's a little redundant. Three pipe bombs, that's a little bit around the bend. Four pipe bombs, Jack, I would say you have made somebody very angry. Your survival is by the grace of God. There is no logical, reasonable explanation other than the grace of God. Well, it's good to have a sponsor because I would not have come up with that. In a million years. Bob said, uh, God has spared your life for a purpose, Jack. God has work for you to do. I said, really, Bob? What kind of work does God have for me to do? He said, I would not be so presumptive, Jack, to even speculate on what God's will might be for you in that regard. But I do know this. That it's God's will for you to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that means you're going to have to pray that third-step prayer with either Ken or myself. You're going to have to do that fourth-step inventory. You're going to have to do that fifth-step with either me or with Ken. You're going to have to make that six-step decision, pray that seven-step prayer, make that eight-step list. Begin making those nine-step amends so you can live in 10, 11, and 12 and fit yourself to be a maximum service to God and to your fellow man. 
Good to have a sponsor. I wouldn't have come up with that in a million years. <laughs> I was discharged from the Washington County Hospital on Christmas Day, 1989, best Christmas I'd ever had up to that point. Christmas of 1990, my wife and I reconciled, and we have been together ever since. And I think I can say without fear of contradiction that our lives together are better today than they've ever been in our entire life. The power of God goes deep. It's got little or nothing to do with her or me, but it has an awful lot to do with the restorative power of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and a loving caring, gracious God that wants only the best for me. Now, when I got out of that hospital, that was not my attitude towards God. In fact, I had still had this little hostility thing going on with God. And Bob said, uh, what's up with that? And I said, when I was 14, I prayed that my dad would stop drinking. And he came home, uh, he, he and I were home one night, and he and I had a discussion, and he promised me he'd never drink again. And when my mom came home that night with my sister, we talked about it, that Dad and I had had a discussion. He was never going to drink again, and our problems were over. And joy ran supreme, reigned supreme that night. This was an answer to prayer. I had been praying. My sister had been praying. My mom had been praying. And the next day, my dad got drunk. And I closed the door on God. I didn't want to have anything to do with a God that played fast and loose with the prayers of a 14-year-old boy. I didn't want to have anything to do with a God who found my prayers to be unworthy. It seemed to me that I was unworthy. And so I closed the door on God, and if I was ever going to do anything or accomplish anything in this life, I was going to do it as a result of worshiping at the altar of self-sufficiency. I'm going to do it myself. And Bob said, well, how old were you when your dad stopped drinking? I says, 26. He says, you're 14, 26, 12 years. He said, Jack, he said, you got any idea what 12 years means to infinite God? Good to have a sponsor. Um, <laughs> that had never come up. <clears throat> He said, 12 years, Jack, to infinite God is an infinitesimal period of time. It is a nanosecond. And point of fact, you got really quick service. What is your complaint? <laughs> Tell me what your understanding of God is, Jack. I said, God is an old guy with long hair and a beard. An ermine robe sitting on a throne on high with a clipboard and a Sharpie pencil <laughs> making check marks and X's next to my name. And by the time I was 12 years old, there were so many black marks against my name that I was never, ever going to get back to even. He was a wrathful, punishing, vengeful God. He said, what kind of God would you like to have? I said, I'd like to have a loving, caring, gracious, forgiving God that wants only the best for me. He said, Jack, you can have that God if you'll just take certain steps. Who knew? I mean, who knew? 
When Bob and Ken were coming to my office all those Fridays and we were reading a big book, I had what I would call today cake mix sobriety. And by that I mean if we would go over to the market tonight and buy a box of Duncan Hines red velvet cake mix, you can trust me on this. On the back of that Duncan Hines box, Mr. Duncan Hines has put a three-step program for the production of a red velvet cake. And if we had a box of that cake mix here tonight, I could read it out loud to you. Uh, we could give it to Lori to read it out loud to us. Uh, we could pass the box around, and you could each read a step and discuss it. And I'm the kind of guy that's looking for my cake. Where's my cake? I've read the box. Where's my cake? I'm meeting with Ken and Bob every Friday reading a big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm looking for recovery. Where's my recovery? Where's my red velvet cake? I haven't opened the box, haven't broken an egg. I'm looking for my cake. <laughs> haven't taken a step, talked about some steps, listened to you talk about steps, thought about steps, didn't take any steps. Where's my recovery? This is not a program for people who need it. This is not even a program for people who want it. This program is for people who do it. I had to get into action. I had to give up that into thinking thing, which I was so fond of, and get into action. And what a wonderful, incredible journey it has been. I'm telling you, so many interesting things have happened that I would never, ever have predicted. I think probably the most uniform thing that I hear from people with long-term sobriety who live in the middle of this program and do the deal on a daily basis is that if you had given me a sheet of paper and said, Jack, just put down what you want to have as a result of sobriety, I would have sold myself way short. I was incapable of imagining what a wonderful life I could have by learning to live sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I never learned how to live sober before. When I started drinking at 14, that was it for me in growing up and maturing. I didn't know how to do sober. I knew how to do sober thinking about drinking, and I knew how to do drinking. And for the longest time, there was drinking with no problems. You know that. It was hats and horns. It was great. I loved everything about it. After a while, yeah, maybe some problems, but... I already told you, you know, I got that badge and everything, so I'm not getting arrested. I mean, but, you know, yes, I'd go over to the Broad Axe, and 10, 11 o'clock at night I'd be out behind a dumpster puking, but that goes with drinking. We all know that's part of the fun of drinking. And <laughs> You ever find anything, anything whatsoever to equate with or duplicate the feeling of that cool porcelain of that toilet pressed against your fevered brow on a Saturday morning? Oh. Mm. That's good stuff. I haven't had projectile vomiting since I quit drinking. What's that all about? I, I, I went to Founders Day in 1991 
And I uh, had to took the program where you you know you stay in the dorm and you eat the food at the dining hall. And if you go there on on Saturday morning, breakfast, lunch, dinner, they got all these buffet lines, and then they make you sit where they want you to sit. You cannot spread out like you are here. They tell you sit, 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 and then they bring the people down the other side of the table. And that way, every time you go to have something to eat, a stranger sits across from you. And you meet new people. And that's part of the ambiance of Founders Day. So now we've done that all day Saturday, and Glenn and I are up, and I went down to the restroom to get ready for the day. And I'm in there, and a guy comes in, and he says, Hi, my name's Woody. I'm from Baltimore. I said, Well, Woody, good to meet you. I'm Jack from Hagerstown. He says, Wow. He says, Me and my sponsor, we bring a meeting up to Hagerstown once a month to that prison. I said, Woody... I am embarrassed to talk to you. He said, why is that? I said, I live 10 miles from that prison. I don't know a single person who takes a meeting into that prison. He said, would you like to go with us? (laughs) Woody, I'd like to talk to you about that, but (laughs) I got to get back to my room to meet my guy, Glenn. Maybe we can talk about that later. And I went back to my room, and I told Glenn what had happened, and he said, did you give him your telephone number, Jack? I said, no, I didn't. He said, Jack, there are 15,000 people here this weekend. He'll never find you. And I took comfort in that. (laughs) So we went over to the dining hall. And we got our food. And we followed the directions of the people there. Every chair, every chair, every chair, every chair, 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 chair. Oh, now they're coming down the other side. Here they come, here they come, here they come. Wonder who's going to sit across from me. Woody. Right there. Not over here. And not over here. Right there. And he says, there he is. He's the guy who wants to take meetings into the prison in Hagerstown. Well, believe me, as a retired circuit court judge, I have no N-O desire to take meetings into the prisons in Hagerstown. I've been sending people into those prisons for 16 years. But I recognize God when he moves in my life. I've, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous that this program asks me to do the things I don't want to do so I can get the things I've never had. Ken used to tell me, you get what you get, Jack, because you do what you do. If you want something you never had, you're going to have to do stuff you've never done. The way we have success in this program is by doing the stuff I don't want to do. And I was encouraged in the big book where it says in Chapter 2 that almost none of us wanted to do this. Almost none of us like the level of our pride. Almost none of us like the ego deflation required by this process. But it's necessary for the process to work. No matter what I think, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't care about what I think. It doesn't care about how I feel. What Alcoholics Anonymous is interested in is what am I doing? 
If I do the deal, I get what the book promises. I get precisely what it promises. The book says that these steps, spiritual in their nature, will remove the obsession to drink. And, and that's a good thing. It really is. It's a good thing. But more importantly, it says it will render the sufferer. I'm the sufferer. Happily and usefully whole. The book says that alcohol is but a symptom. Bottles are a symbol. My problem is my thinking. There's something wrong with the way I'm wired up. I'm a pretty smart guy. I don't know that I'm as smart as Nancy, but I think I'm pretty smart. I'm a hip, slick, cool guy. <laughs> How could a hip, slick, cool guy like me bring his sorry ass into Alcoholics Anonymous if I'm so hip, slick, and cool? Because I am a total failure in managing my own life. There's something wrong with the way I think. Simply how I think is my problem. S-H-I-T. Simply how I think is my problem. <laughs> and the book seems to underscore that. Now, we have this pamphlet in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called, Is AA for You? And you know these people up there at World Service are always interested in suggestions of how these pamphlets can be improved. And I have some suggestions. And if you agree that these suggestions have merit, I would ask you to write them in New York. But here's my new set of questions. Have you ever decided to stop thinking for a week or so and only lasted for a couple of days? <laughs> do you wish people would mind their own business about your thinking and stop telling you what to do? Do you envy people who can think without getting into trouble? Have you had problems connected with your thinking during the past year? <laughs> Has your thinking caused trouble at home? <laughs> Do you tell yourself that you can stop thinking anytime you want to, even though you keep thinking when you don't mean to? <laughs> Have you missed days of work or school because of your thinking? <laughs> Have you ever felt that your life would be better if you did not think? I think this has merit. Write to your delegate or world services. When I, uh, when I was a child and I would fall and skin my knee and I would run home to my mom crying she would get a cloth and some water and she'd clean that wound and she would add some mercurochrome and she put a bandage on it. And I thought my mom healed my wound. But in point of fact, my mother did not heal the wound. What my mom did was she provided an environment in which healing could take place. And that's what AA does. I come here broken powerless, bankrupt in every area of my life. And Alcoholics Anonymous provides an environment in which healing can take place if I'll just take certain steps. And God does the healing. On Sunday tomorrow, a lot of people are going to be gathering up and they're going to be wondering if God exists. And you and I get to watch God work on a daily basis. 
What a gifted group we are. What a blessed group we are. People wonder if the Age of Miracles was 2,000 years ago, and you and I both know that the Age of Miracles is with us now. We see it every day. Frequently we see it in the lives of others before we see it in our own lives. But we see it. The longer I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, the less I really know. But I know this. I know I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous tonight because a lot of people prayed. My wife prayed. Our children prayed. Even my mom, who doesn't think I'm an alcoholic, she thinks I'm crazy. (laughs) She prayed. God, please send somebody to help my son. And if you're an Alcoholics Anonymous, you're here because somebody prayed. Maybe a lot of somebody's prayed. Now, you may not believe that. You may not even like that. And I don't care. And AA doesn't care. Because it's the truth. And that's the problem with the truth. The truth is just the truth. Whether I agree with it or not doesn't make any difference whatsoever. It's just the truth. Now here's the truth I think we can get our arms around without any debate or argument. And that is the people who are seated in this room, in this auditorium, at this moment, right here, right now, have never been assembled together before in the history of the world. And we are never, ever going to be assembled together again. And our book says there is one that has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Right here. Right now. There's somebody in this room this evening who had absolutely no intention on being here tonight. And yet you're here. And it's not by accident that you're here. And there are others who are here who have been sent by God to hear something. I don't know what you were sent here to hear. That's none of my business. And I don't know why you were sent here and I don't know what it is you were intended to hear. But I know this. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for you to take back to your home group. Maybe it's for you to use with that sponsee that God is preparing for you who will be arriving sometime around June 10th. I don't know. But it's not by accident that you're here. Somebody prayed. A lot of somebody's prayed. This pamphlet is entitled, A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope every one of you have a copy of it. I hope you give it to all of your sponsees. I think it's the finest piece of AA literature we have outside of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. That is my opinion. If you have read this pamphlet, you have your own opinion. If you have not read this pamphlet, you don't have an opinion. So why don't you get a copy of the pamphlet and read it? But I'm going to read what's at the very end of this pamphlet. Tomorrow, Sunday, in the churches of many of us that we read that portion of the Gospel of Matthew, which recounts the time when John the Baptist was languishing in the prison of Herod, and hearing of the works of his cousin Jesus, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Art thou he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Christ did as he so often did. He did not answer them directly. 
But he wanted John to decide for himself. And so he said to the disciples, Go and report to John what you have heard and what you have seen. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. Excuse me. The deaf hear. The dead rise. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Back in my childhood catechism days, I was taught that the poor in this instance did not mean only the poor in a material sense, but also meant the poor in spirit. Those who burn with an inner hunger and an inner thirst. And that the word gospel meant quite literally the good news. A number of years ago, two men, Ken and Bob, working singularly and together, maneuvered me into Alcoholics Anonymous. Tonight, if they were here and they were to ask me, tell us, Jack, what did you find? I would have to say to them what I now say to you. I can tell you only what I have heard and seen. It seems that the blind do see. The lame do walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead rise. And over and over again in the middle of the longest day or the darkest night, the poor in spirit have the good news told to them. God grant that it may always be so. My name is Jack. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April the 7th, 1982. As our friend Ed was so fond of saying, I love each and every one of you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Thanks for letting me share.